0: Welcome to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm Karen James. The Transforming Justice Coalition is back in Salem with unfinished business from the 2021 Oregon Legislative Session. This year, Senate Bill 1510 proposes to reduce unnecessary police stops, improve success for people on probation and parole, and address racial disparities in the criminal legal system. With me is Julianne Jackson, and Talia Gad with Partnership for Safety and Justice. Welcome to Prison Pipeline. Thanks, for having, Thanks us. for having us. Julianne, Partnership for Safety and Justice is a member of the Transforming Justice Coalition. Give some background about Partnership for Safety and Justice.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, Partnership for Safety and Justice is actually Oregon's leading public safety and criminal justice reform organization. We've been around for about 22 years, and we bring together people that have been convicted of crime, survivors of crime. Um, and we do that to transform the system and to make it more effective in terms of accountability, racial equity, and healing. Some of our biggest successes include keeping two prisons from opening over the last 10 years, getting Oregon on track to reduce the incarceration rate by 15% over 10 years. Not only do these things help keep families together, but it has also saved the state over half a billion dollars in wasteful prison spending. And just as important, we've invested nearly $200 million into all 30 six counties in Oregon toward community-based services like crime victim services, addiction treatment, housing, and other services that make our communities much safer and much stronger.
0: So House Bill 2002, which was introduced in the 2021 legislative session by the Transforming Justice Coalition, was not fully successful, but some components did pass. So can you talk about which components did pass in 2021? And then we'll discuss the unfinished business introduced in 2022.
1: So we had some great champions of last year's bill, especially representative Janelle Bynum. The parts that passed are huge. Oregon became the second state in the country to eliminate post-prison supervision fees. When people come out of prison, they have no work. And it can be really hard to find a job and pay for housing and just get on your feet. Supervision fees were a serious burden and it prevented people from being successful. And eliminating those was historic. The other thing that passed is we were able to expand who was eligible for less time under post-prison supervision, as well as funding for restorative justice programs to support crime survivors who want a pathway to accountability that's currently outside of the system we have.
0: So the House bill was not fully successful in 2021. So why does the Transforming Justice Coalition now feel it will pass during this 2022 short 35-day session?
2: The bill in 2021 was pretty ambitious, and it was multifaceted. And as Julianne said, a number of those things did pass, and those things are really big and exciting. Another thing that happened is over the interim, over the last many months, Senate Judiciary Chair Floyd Przansky convened a work group with a lot of people from the Transforming Justice Coalition and folks from a range of public safety agencies and groups. There were really dynamic, robust conversations, and we came out with general agreement on a policy proposal that we feel really great about.
0: The bill number is Senate Bill 1510. So first, let's talk about how this bill will reduce unnecessary police stops.
2: So the first part of the bill, aims to reduce racial disparities in traffic stops, really reform traffic, how traffic stops are done. One of the reforms is to make a single broken headlight, taillight, brake light, or license plate light a secondary offense. So what that means is that an officer can still issue a citation if a driver is pulled over for something else, but it would eliminate unnecessary stops if that's the only issue. A second way that it would reform how traffic stops are done is that law enforcement would be required to notify drivers of their right to refuse their consent to a search. So similar to Miranda rights, where people uh, have the right to know what their rights are, this would do something very similar, letting drivers know that they actually do have the right to refuse to consent to a search. And I'll just add that for both of these, If there is a significant public safety concern, and for example, there's some very concrete and evident reason why a search still does need to be conducted, there is still a higher bar of public safety. Where that search can still be conducted under that law that's not actually affected by this bill.
0: And they don't have to notify the driver or ask for their consent to search in those instances where there is probable cause or reasonable suspicion to search a vehicle. Is that correct? Correct. So, why do we need such a law?
1: Um, you know, I think that's really best explained by Bebeck. He's joining Partnership for Safety and Justice. And I think I'll just let him explain that.
3: My name is Baba Zulfagari Azar, and I use he, him, his pronouns, and I am a man of Middle Eastern descent with short black hair, full beard, and brown eyes, and I'm part of the Transforming Justice Coalition. Oregonians deserve to feel safe and be treated with dignity. Many of us, especially Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and other people of color, feel vulnerable and unprotected in our own communities, in part because of unnecessary interactions, with law enforcement increase risks of excessive force and violence to help our communities feel and be safer. Here are the two main policies included in the section that deals with how arrests and stops are made. First, a requirement that officers notify the person they have stopped, that they have the right to decline a request that an officer makes to search the vehicle, similar to the Miranda rights that we have all come to know. Second, Making certain traffic offenses, such as one broken tail light, one broken headlight, one broken brake light, or broken license plate light are secondary offenses. This means that someone cannot be pulled over solely for this issue, but can be cited for it if they are pulled over for something else. This specific policy is designed to limit pretextual stops that too often result in fatal outcomes for people of color. I can recall every detail over the the last few years of the 15 police stops I've experienced in my life and the countless court appearances as a result of those stops. As a 17 year old minor, the summer after I graduated from high school as an almost straight A student, I was taken to Washington County adult jail for furnishing alcohol to minors just to be taught a lesson and scared straight. Instead, it was one of the most traumatic, dehumanizing experiences of my life. That charge was later dropped to a traffic violation and a large fine in court by the judge. Then in my early 20s, as I finished my senior year at Portland State University, as I was preparing for the LSAT to go to law school, I was re-traumatized by police when they put, put me in handcuffs, tormented and belittled me. Then illegally searched my car after lying about me running a red light. Again, using a false traffic stop that I can't disprove to justify a traumatizing experience that has lasted a lifetime. Let me be clear, there were no public safety threats in any of these stops. Multiple times, police said in court, and of course a judge took their word over mine, that I didn't signal before turning or didn't stop all the way at a red light before turning. Using that lie as an excuse to violate my freedom, ask me questions unrelated to the stop and leave me with experiences that have reshaped my life. Those police stops, in fact, changed the trajectory of my life as they do the lives of people of color in our community, our state, and our nation. Fortunately, I live to talk about it, but the impact has left an imprint on me. Every time I drive by cops in the 18 years since my first interaction with police, those dehumanizing experiences run through my mind. I pray that an officer doesn't pull up behind me. That vehicle, those blue and red sirens, their presence are all triggers to my trauma. If I get pulled over, will I end up in cuffs? Will I be fighting another court case where my evidence is meaningless versus the word of an officer? Will I end up in adult jail or six feet under because of the color of my skin? If the discretion of police was limited to stopping people because of a public safety concern, not a traffic violation, then I likely wouldn't be living with those concerns. Imagine the number of lives that wouldn't be lost to police brutality. Imagine the difference it would make on people's records, employment opportunities, housing, and the overall trajectory of life for families. It's time to see how damaging the discretion of police is on communities of color, and how limits on that discretion can save lives.
0: Senate Bill 1510 is now going through the Oregon legislature, and one legislator said that requiring police officers to inform a driver of a search of a vehicle will give false hope to a driver because the police can search their vehicle regardless of their consent, and that this will only escalate interactions with the police. I
2: think that this is a right that drivers have, and it does not serve our communities for people to not know what their rights are. And I do understand that whenever there is a proposal to do something a little bit differently, that it can feel new and it can feel unsettling. Um, But I think the main goal of Senate Bill 1510 and really of the Transforming Justice Coalition and Partnership for Safety and Justice is to encourage the state of Oregon and Oregonians to think about public safety differently. There are ways that we have been doing public safety for a long time that actually does not feel like public safety for all Oregonians. I mean, we know that Black and Brown Oregonians, BIPOC communities feel like when there's interactions with the public safety system, that that doesn't actually promote public safety, but actually increases risk to their own personal safety. We have to be aware of what public safety means for all Oregonians and to shift our system to make it so that it is a public safety system that more adequately supports people of color and communities of color across our state.
1: I think it's really important for folks to know what their rights are. I think this is already something that is a law. And I think the other part about that is this is beneficial to both parties. When we start getting into cases and trying cases or defending yourself in a case, these questions of whether or not searches are permitted or searches were approved by the person, these details become very important and they become important for both sides. And I think that's why this is something that protects black and brown folks, because oftentimes, you know, it's called into question whether the search was approved or not, uh, whether what was found was approved or not, or found where it was said to be found. And anything that adds clarity to the criminal justice system is a
2: positive thing.
0: Talia, initially you said this was about racial disparities. So how will this eliminate racial disparities in police stops?
2: We know that there are racial disparities at every point of the public safety and criminal justice system. So when we think about what essential public safety and criminal justice reforms need to look like, what we need to think about is how Black Oregonians, Brown Oregonians, other BIPOC communities across our state, what public safety looks like to all of us. When it comes to traffic stops, we are all very aware by now that there are not just disparities in stops. We know that that's data that the state of Oregon has collected and that has been persistent in our state, but also that there are real risks for people of color getting pulled over?
1: You know, I think this is important on on a number of levels. I think when we see pretextual stops, we've seen this all over the country. We've seen pretextual stops lead to the death of black and brown individuals. You know, this is a simple way that we can cut down on those stops. Decreasing contact between police and black and brown citizens seems to be an effective way to to keep black and brown communities safe. And this is just one way to do that.
0: And you said also that this prohibits police officers from initiating a traffic stop based solely on having a single headlight or a taillight out or a brake light not working. But state rates show that Oregonians are dying at high rates from vehicle crashes. So won't less lighting on cars just lead to further fatalities?
1: Um, We don't believe so. I think the fact that, you know, when you're pulled over now for a taillight out, a brake light out, a plate light out. You're oftentimes given a fix-it ticket, and you're you're let go. You're left to drive home. So that leads us to you know the conclusion that this is not as big of an ordeal as folks would uh, you know would like it to appear, and that you know obviously we want folks to know that they need to get their headlights. and We want those in working order, right? Those are good things to do, but we also understand that. As long as one of these things are operational, we don't believe that there's an additional risk factor that we've been able to, to identify.
0: And what are the statistics with white people versus people of color who get pulled over in these instances and ending up dead?
1: I don't have that particular that exact data. That's a very specific question, but what I can say is, you know, not all not all pretextual stops end in death. That, that's a very, you know, honestly, it's, it's not as large a number as you would think. However, what it does lead to often though is incarceration. What it does lead to is traumatic experiences for black and brown Oregonians, and Americans. So we talk about the biggest point, which is obviously that those stops can lead to death for black and brown people. But there are also counterpoints all along the way where pretextual stops are traumatic. Pretextual stops add to black body trauma. Pretextual stops often adds to searches and seizures. They often lead to arrests. And we know that that happens Far more often than that happens for, you know, our Caucasian peers, we know that that's accurate and that's proven and that's shown. the that, you know, the desperate amount of black and brown folks in prisons in Oregon, you know, that doesn't align. With, uh, you know, this idea that people are just being pulled over for these pretextual stops and let go. And so, you know, there's a lot more to think about than just the horror stories that we've seen on the news. There's a lot more to think about than just those huge stories and bylines that we hear. Because this impacts Black and brown people every day. I am a Black woman. I know exactly what this feels like. I've been pulled over for it myself numerous times, multiple times. And every time is traumatic. Every single time. And I think that's what we need to kind of start reframing as well. Like, yes, we want to stop the obvious murder is obviously the worst it could get. But there are so many feelings and emotions and traumatizing situations that happen between just getting pulled over and that that we also need to start considering those things as well.
0: So the second component of Senate Bill 1510 is about community corrections. Now, it does modify some provisions of probation and post-prison supervision.
2: Yeah, so the goal of this part is really to improve success for people on probation and parole. And so what this part of the bill would do is create a rulemaking process that would, in some cases, prevent Parole and probation officers from visiting people that they supervise at work. We know that it can be really hard to get work right after incarceration when return we're returning to our communities. And there's a lot of stigma to being formally incarcerated. And you could be doing everything amazingly well. People do are on track, they're they're reconnected with families, and those connections in our communities are. Coming back together, and people are successful in rebuilding their lives. And then someone pops in in a uniform with, like, that it's armed, and it just changes the dynamic of how you're perceived in your workplace. There's stigma. The relationships change within those environments, and it is such an unnecessary disruption for people who are doing great, rebuilding their lives. And it's just not a necessary kind of interaction that should be as standard as it is. Reducing those unnecessary visits is a matter of public safety. And then also a part of this bill that I think really relates to some of this, to the, the same kind of bucket, is to require training for corrections officers so that the agencies that our supervising community members are doing so in a way that's culturally specific and trauma-informed. Yes, public safety is a shared outcome. How we do that, again, it kind of goes back to really just in general how our public safety system interacts with community members. Sometimes those can be more traumatic, um, be more harmful, and be more risky for public safety rather than building public safety. And our corrections officers don't always have the information that's needed about how to be trauma-informed about what culturally specific services look like for people who are under supervision. And so requiring some of that training is just going to be best practice for the agencies and for folks that are while they're on supervision. Julianne, do you want to add to that? Yeah, you know,
1: currently the training for supervision staff So they get 160 hours, most of that being weapons training. Not one hour is dedicated to trauma-informed practices or cultural competence. So I think that's something that's really important as well as we look at what our priorities are.
0: Is law enforcement or the parole and probation officers in the counties, are they on board with this legislation?
2: I don't believe that there are agencies on record who have said that they're opposed to the bill in total. We have heard from individual law enforcement um, and law enforcement agencies that there are some questions and even concerns that people have about some specific proposals in the bill. And those conversations are happening. I will say that I think that, Anytime there's a shift in what public safety looks like, for us the big question is always, are we really creating public safety for all of our communities? What public safety looks like from the perspective of, let's say a white police officer that doesn't have personal experience being impacted by systemic racism might look different, does look different from uh, folks that are impacted by racial disparities, again, at every level of our criminal justice system. And I think that this is a critical part of the conversation that we um, just have to keep elevating, is that what systems folks sometimes refer to as public safety is not public safety for all of our community members. So that's the conversation that we're trying to have.
0: How do you respond to Republicans who say this bill is soft on crime or pro-criminal?
1: You know, if tough on crime worked, I don't think we'd we'd be in the position that we're in. So I think, you know, the soft on crime, no, we're, we're big on people. Um, we're big on resources. We are big on doing the right thing and doing things differently. Um, like I said, you know, we've been doing tough on crime since, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. And here we find ourselves. So
0: So let's go to the third component of the bill, which is justice reinvestment.
2: So the goal of the third part of this bill is really to promote racial disparities and to address racial disparities that are prevalent throughout Oregon's criminal justice system, and also to reduce prison use by um, creating as a part of Justice Reinvestment Program, really the Justice Reinvestment Equity Program to fund services. Right now there's over $50 million that are allocated to public safety agencies and community-based organizations around the state that are meant to promote public safety across every county. We know that zero of those dollars are going to culturally specific organizations. We released a report about a year ago that delved into the experiences of crime victims of color who talked about why it is that sort of mainstream services that are available for folks don't work for them. We are, I don't think, as aware that when something is not designed to be culturally specific, what it is actually designed to do is to be culturally specific for white people that unless you really think about what it is that diverse communities need in order to heal and recover and thrive, that that does need to look different for folks and to not explicitly fund the kinds of programs that are rooted in our communities, that are delivered in a way that is culturally specific, that does reflect the communities that we want to serve is just an enormous gap that I think at this point in our understanding of what public safety is supposed to look like is just something that we urgently have to repair.
1: It's really important that we, you know, we also look at like, for example, programs like Red Lodge Transition Centers. It's a transition center that serves Indigenous women in transitioning back into their communities. Programs like Flip the Script When I speak to people that are going through those programs, that are transitioning through those programs, one of the main things they say is, especially with Red Lodges, I was able to heal using my own cultural practices. Like I was able to smudge. I was able to have somebody who understood my role in my community. And that really put me back on track. That really helped me to grow in this area. And I think that's another thing that people have to consider is that different cultures have different ways of healing and different ways of coming back into community Um, A lot of folks have restorative justice practices that America just doesn't understand. And so when we allow people to heal within their own culture, the results are much, much better.
0: So Talia, Partnership for Safety and Justice was instrumental in getting justice reinvestment passed with House Bill 3194 in the 2013 legislative session here in Oregon. So can you give just a brief description of what justice reinvestment is?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good summary. Basically, in 2013, the state of Oregon was looking at breaking ground to build a new prison. The broad understanding was really a shared goal that we need to flatline prison growth. And so the justice reinvestment program was developed both to reduce some prison sentences, so really to reduce our reliance on incarceration throughout the state of Oregon and using some of those dollars from those savings, investing in our communities so that people still had community-based services, so that community supervision could be a little bit more robust, that crime survivor services could be integrated into those public safety dollars because our crime survivor program services that are throughout the state are severely underfunded. So that was integrated into justice reinvestment. And it also, because Anyone who knows about what public safety infrastructure looks like knows that it has to include housing, it has to include drug treatment, it has to include access to mental health services, parenting programs, employment. So the Justice Reinvestment Grant programs that came out of that House Bill 3194 in 2013 specifically directed dollars to all 36 counties for those dollars to be um, allocated appropriately, determined by what each community saw. But again, because zero of those dollars went to culturally specific programs, this is just a way to make sure that those dollars are more equitably distributed.
0: And where is Senate Bill 1510 currently in the legislative process?
2: Senate Bill 1510 was introduced by the Senate Judiciary Committee and it passed out of that committee. It then went to Ways and Means. This is the point while it's in Ways and Means that it's really critical for folks to email their legislators and to let people know that they're in support of this really transformative approach to public safety and criminal justice. The legislative session in this year, every other year is very short things move really quickly. And so taking action right away so that your lawmakers know that you support a more equitable approach to criminal justice and public safety. Yeah, and your power and let your voice be heard. Julianne, do you want to talk about the specific ways that people can take action and get involved?
1: So as movement building director, it's kind of part of my job to, um, to talk to anybody that has questions, anybody that wants to get involved. So you guys can always go to the Partnership for Safety and Justice website, find me uh, messages, and we can do it that way. But the easiest way is to go to transformingjusticecoalition.org. From that website, you'll be able to contact us if you'd like to endorse or get involved in a, in a bigger way. You'll be able to write your legislators and let them know that this is something that you support. And then you'll also get updates there on where we are in the process, what it is that we need, action alerts, all of those good things. And again, that's transformingjusticecoalition.org.
0: So again, the Oregon Legislative Session is a short 35 days. The bill number is Senate Bill 1510. My guests have been Julianne Jackson and Talia Gad with Partnership for Safety and Justice. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You have been listening to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. And thank you for listening.